1: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this fine August day in the nation's capital where we promise this podcast will not last 71 minutes. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent with McClatchy, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Michael Wilner, a White House correspondent for McClatchy, who thankfully joined us in this early morning post-RNC convention to share his thoughts and observations. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And of course we're thrilled to be joined by Francesca Chambers, our other White House correspondent and someone with whom I converse frequently about the 2020 presidential election through all forms of communication, text, phone calls, G-chats, you name it. Francesca, terrific to have you back.
2: Alex, I have some really bad news for you though this morning. What's that? You may have heard that Kellyanne Conway is leaving the White House and so there's no chance that she's gonna make a surprise appearance on this show, unfortunately.
1: Francesca, you you and I saw that news differently. Now I think the chances are greater than ever before that, I'm that she'll come her. on Beyond the Bubble.
2: You know what? I'll ask her to make it her last act is to come on <laughs> this show for you.
1: Well, I, I, I'm I'm sure she's a she's a bubble <laughs> fanatic, so that that would be that would be appropriate. Okay, so we are here the morning after the Republican National Convention. It was a Four day affair that had, again, much like the Democratic convention, a very different feel to it this year. You had an added layer, I would say, the GOP convention of a, of a, what appeared to be a very inappropriate mix of use of government buildings, including the White House. And in particular, during Donald Trump's speech last night, we will talk about that. A, a very different affair. But the question, I think, Michael, still bottom line politically is whether or not Donald Trump and the GOP did enough to try to get back into this presidential race because according to the polls, as we headed into this convention, he was still down by a fairly significant margin, not just nationally, but in most battleground states. And, and I think the question is, what did he do this week to try to make up that ground? And was he successful, in your
3: opinion? I don't know if he was successful, but I think that over the course of the four days, they did settle on a consistent theme, which I know they were accused of not having gone into the convention, a consistent theme of attack against Biden, that he's a vessel of the far left. And whether or not that's going to work, you know, we can talk about, but I do think that they they did have some discipline throughout the convention and so that in and of itself you could say was an accomplishment but overall i was struck by just the hyperbole uh, that you saw throughout obviously the president's speech and throughout the whole convention um i think it was really consistent hearing comparisons between the so the socialism you're seeing on the far left and you know the socialism that in in the words of some of the speakers americans fought against in World War II, really stark comparisons that we saw from the Republicans. So at the Democratic convention, they they definitely raised the stakes and said that democracy is on the ballot. And I think that what the Republicans were doing were essentially meeting those stakes in their own terms. Francesca, what were your impressions?
2: Well, I think last night, we were talking about this, Alex. As the speech went on, the president started ad-libbing more and more, and that really struck <laughs> me because it was so long. Like he seemed bored with the speech, and you always know when he's about to veer off course because he, you know he starts repeating words like victims and victimhood, and you know, I mean, so true. And he didn't do the so true thing last night, but but it started to go in that direction adding whole swaths about like the the building behind him, things like that. And so I, I thought it was really telling because even though they tried very hard to write a speech for him and just get him to stick to a teleprompter, he still didn't do that, particularly as it did go on past an hour range. And so for the Democratic convention, they had said, oh, Biden, you know, he stuck to a teleprompter. What's the big deal with that? But as a juxtaposition, Trump couldn't even do that. He could not stick to the teleprompter. That's literally the only thing he had to do last night. And so I think that that uh, pretty much sets the tone for the rest of this presidential election. There were times when it wasn't really clear why he didn't just stick with the topic of coronavirus because he talked talk about it and then he'd move on to something about public safety and then he'd come back to it. So it was really bobbing and weaving just the way that it was written all together. There wasn't a lot of direction to it.
3: I agree with that. I, I would say it definitely had the feeling of him checking boxes. It almost felt like a State of the Union speech in, in ways, mm-hmm. uh, where you know he was going through all of his accomplishments and. And, you know, that elephant on the South Lawn was the coronavirus, uh, which he gave passing mention to. And there was quite a revisionist history there. So, yeah, he he had there was one there was one
1: relatively brief section about about coronavirus, which was in keeping with really the whole convention, I would say. Michael, let's stick, though, with the the theme, because I I think I, I agree with you. Also, I mean, this is the most important thing to come out of the Republican National Convention was that for a campaign and really a political party that had kind of wildly cast about in its criticism of of Joe Biden, criticizing everything from his mental acuity to, you know, that he's soft on China, that he is he is corrupt. You know, they really seem to focus on just not that he's liberal, but that because he's liberal, you and your family are unsafe. And I actually thought Mike Pence. In his speech Wednesday night really encapsulated that approach to me, quote, the hard truth is you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. I mean, it's very explicit and very different from saying Joe Biden is actually super liberal and he's going to raise your taxes. There was that message, but it was clearly an undercard to this this criticism that you you won't be safe. Do you think that that is going to be an effective message or at least evaluate maybe some of the pros and cons of that?
3: First of all, all of those attacks were there, right? All of, you know, Mm -hmm. the the attack on China, the attack on corruption, his those were definitely still there. But I, you know, I do agree that the focus has been uh, sharpened on Pence's speech. You know, it was. First of all, far less watched than Harris's acceptance speech, which might not come as a surprise, but he did offer a preview of his ability to attack the Democratic ticket. And I do think it was something of a shot across the bow for those who think that it's going to, you know, be a blowout when the two of them debate. I think that he has taken on that attack dog role and I think that uh, Biden's response has already formulated, which is if the Republican ticket is accusing us of supporting defunding the police, if they're accusing us of fostering uh, an unsafe environment in the suburbs and in the inner cities, the problem is that we're living in Donald Trump's America today, and he's already previewed that response. And all of this is occurring under the Trump administration, and uh, ultimately I think that's going to be how the debate plays out because, you know, we are in fact seeing this increase in violence, you know, under Trump. And the question will naturally be what policies are they taking other than sending law enforcement that's not requested by state and local officials into, you know, into these jurisdictions.
1: Francesca, I understand the point of view from the Trump campaign and why that they would pursue this course If one. And I think we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but it, it feels like they just don't think they have a great response to the coronavirus pandemic right now. Politically speaking, that it's just hard for them to, to marshal the, a convincing argument that he has responded well to this because the public by and large just doesn't think he has. And that's why his poll numbers have dropped. And so they're trying to, to, to move on and they're, they're trying to move on, not just arbitrarily, right? I mean, this is the protests and some of the the looting and the destruction to buildings and personal harm that have come to people because that, I mean they're not making that part up. I mean that is happening right now in in some cities, most recently Kenosha. So it does feel like they're they're not forcing this. This might be something that that a lot of Americans are paying attention to right now.
2: Well, and another way that they're strategically trying to move on is by saying, listen, there will be a vaccine. Before it was, you know, it could be by the end of the year. Now it's, it will definitely be by the end of the year, maybe even sooner, which would be, you know, before the end of his first term. And so, I mean, Michael can speak more to this because he's been covering this extensively, but, it's very hard for the President to actually guarantee that there's going to be a, a widely distributed vaccine before the end of the year. but yet that is what we saw him get up and do at the Republican National Convention to, to, to strategically be able to move on and try and make it sound like this isn't a thing you really need to worry about anymore because I've got it handled to be able to move on to those issues that they think that they will do better with against Joe Biden.
3: Right right. Oh, Michael, go ahead. Francesca is absolutely right. And the administration has for a long time, tried to have it both ways, right? They've insisted that the president has been in favor of masks, for example, that he's heeded guidance, you know, from health experts and scientists, while also, you know, encouraging these relaxed restrictions and guidance. And I really think the convention was the moment where they clearly put that equivocation to rest, right? And it became clear that they'll blow past the science if it's inconvenient or if doing so is politically advantageous. You may have noticed last night the opening sequence included mocking mask mandates and shutdowns uh, by saying that, you know, the opposition wants to tell you what to wear, you know, with a, a video of people wearing masks and when you can go to work. Larry Kudlow, one night during the convention, talked about the pandemic in the past tense which is just absurd. And the few live events that were put on, they put forward to the public this warped image of a country that's emerged from the virus when we lost more Americans over the week of the convention alone than we did during 9-11. And so the extent that you actually heard speakers address the virus in detail was pretty minimal. And to the extent that they did, it was, it was revisionist. You had Melania and Vice President Pence, and you had Ivanka Trump, you know, cast the president as, you know, the leader to bring us back from you know the brink and revive the economy. And now the, the line is this make America great again, again. And I just don't know how that's going to sell.
1: I, I thought Larry Kudlow again, you know Donald Trump's top economic advisor, beaming in from his home in Connecticut to talk of the coronavirus effects distinctly in the past tense. Right? He kept talking about it in the past tense, and I thought it was probably one of the the weakest moments of of the convention. I mean, Francesca, you were you were there last night at the White House. I mean, it it seemed like part of the subtext of so many of these events was that a they would gather people at all, and that Generally speaking, the people who they gathered weren't wearing masks. And, and, you know, you even saw that inside the White House during some of the pre-recorded clips that they played earlier in the convention. I mean, and, you know, my question is, I mean, that it just felt like the, the, the entire messaging around coronavirus was the text and the subtext was just kind of a almost half-hearted and, and a jumbled mess. And as you said, Michael, to the point that they did talk about it, I mean, they did misrepresent what Donald Trump has said on the issue.
2: So take these two issues totally separately, because inside the White House, anyone who's in close proximity to the president gets tested for coronavirus. So I, I did notice that there was a lot of criticism f- for the fact that people he was talking to, you know, these postal workers, everyone else, they weren't like totally socially distanced, they weren't wearing masks, and they were close to the president and stuff. All of those people were tested. You have to test negative to even get that close to that president in that setting, which is not something many other people obviously have access to on a daily basis. So I can see why people would not understand that, but I do think you have to be clear about that. As far as the outdoor event goes, people were not being tested out there. There were roughly 1,500 people. Now, some of those people were wearing masks. I mean, I cannot definitively say how many of them. It was a very large crowd, I don't know. But, But I would say that most of them, from what I could see, were not wearing masks, and they were not socially distanced, and they were not being tested. And, you know, that is the image that that was being projected and and beamed across America. And I thought that especially when you looked at the president's cabinet, even though people who are, again, in close proximity of the president are tested. So therefore, some of those people, right, like they they, they've already been tested. They're tested every day. Okay. but when you look at that image sitting in the front row and you have members of the president's cabinet who are elderly, all sitting line, line by line, right? And they're not wearing masks. And then you have the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, the only person wearing a mask. That was a really stark relief as to what was going on out there.
1: You know, I, I think one of the things that come out of the convention, one of the more memorable lines, former Notre Dame coach Lou Holtz saying that Joe Biden was a Catholic in name only. Now, uh, Francesca, and Michael, you wrote this week about a a new effort, a well funded effort on the right to reach out to religious voters. Um, I think sometimes, in in terms as stark as those, questioning whether or not Joe Biden is truly a a committed Catholic. What tell us a little bit about it, Michael?
3: What was interesting uh, to me reporting out the piece with Francesca was thinking back on all of the policy overtures. The overt policy overtures that we've seen Trump take to court faith voters since taking office, whether it be uh, Catholic voters, evangelical voters, Jewish voters. And there were a lot of those policies. And the prospect that all of that could ultimately be for naught, right, with Trump polling behind his 2016 performance, at least with evangelical voters in some polls and with Catholic, white Catholic voters in some polls in the critical Rust Belt. Jewish voters, obviously there are fewer, so it's more expensive to to conduct a a targeted poll, but they are a consequential block in in Florida, which is an absolute must-win state for him in November. And the data that we have from 2018 showed us that the embassy move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, his withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal weren't enough to chip away at the democratic margin among those voters in fact he lost ground with you know his immigration policies with Charlottesville and the like uh, so you know as the president likes to say you know we'll see what happens but he is not one you know for subtlety you know he is a blunt instrument and you could generally see where he thinks his own weak spots are based on how he attacks and his blunt attacks on Biden's faith and his religiosity to me are are quite telling.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. (coughs) Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I will say to take a step back, you know, there were, there were parts of this convention I didn't think fit together very well. I didn't think thematically. One thing that happened at the Democratic convention last week, it felt like every, every single speech or video that they played was in service of some goal. And I didn't always get that feeling from the RNC this week. However. I I do think there were a couple of positive things. One, we've already talked about how they seem to settle on a message at long last, which look, just inherently, even if you question that message, political efficacy, finding a single message to dwell on is better than this scattershot approach they've been taking. On the other hand, and I heard from some Republicans, I mean, it really did seem to galvanize the base. Now, look, a convention galvanizing a political base is a pretty low bar, but they were able to, to do that. Francesca, what was generally speaking, I mean, what do you think went right at the convention this week for Republicans?
2: I just want to touch on what you just said. I think that they actually did in some ways a similar thing to what Democrats did, which mm-hmm. is that every person they put out there, I think was meant to speak to a certain person. That person just often was not you, Alex Rorty. Um, or me, <laughs> or even me, or even Michael Wilner. They had a very specific demographics that they were that they were going to. Mm. You know, they put Rand Paul up. He's, you know, the libertarian. He's the, you know, anti-war person. So it's like, as Michael said, you check that box. The, the, you know, they're putting up like conservatives who were talking about anti-abortion efforts. Check that box. They had the McCloskeys up there who, you know, are saying at one time as they're talking about protesters marching towards their home. And then the uh, convention is actually showing imagery of Black Lives Matter, which they don't say. It's just imagery that flashes by. So you can check that box if you're them. I saw a lot of of that during the convention. And that was my takeaway. And, And I say that it's not dissimilar from what Democrats did, only in that they often had different people up there talking about, you know, immigration and different diversity measures and and different policies. Now, one could argue that the Republican convention played much more to the conservative and GOP base than the Democratic Convention did, because there were fewer progressives. There was very little time for millennials, such as AOC, who, you know, Donald Trump has spent more time in his own convention talking about as the future of the Democratic Party than the Democratic Party actually did. But other than that, you know, I do I do think that with the time that they all had, which was limited, Republicans added 30 minutes on to theirs every night than Democrats. They were trying to pack a lot in there. My one takeaway, I would say, from what Republicans did, that I thought was really fascinating, was how much time they spent on how Donald Trump, in the eyes of all these people, is not a racist, and also that he's different in private than what we've seen publicly somehow for the past three or four years. That's an argument I really question how much that will we'll, we'll stick with people. I think it's easy to say, oh, yes, I don't really know this person, so maybe they're different," but, given that Donald Trump has just been so public with all of his tweets and everything that he does, I don't know how many voters are going to be swayed by the idea that there's a there's a different guy that Ivanka Trump's daughter seems to know that we haven't seen. Or Larry Kudlow.
1: I would just say the, the part that really stuck out to me is kind of um, just not in line with the rest of the speech. It was former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi spoke, I believe it was on Tuesday, and just Focused entirely on Hunter Biden and charges of corruption. And it was the only time Hunter really had been mentioned at the convention before or since. And it just felt like, wait, what are we what are we doing here, folks? Are we are we making this attack? Are we are we reviving this as an issue? Or are we just checking a box about this and moving on? That feels very strange. I want to talk about what Francesca was just talking about, though, because I think that was a key and I think unexpected part of the convention, having people testify. Not only was Trump not a racist, but he wasn't a misogynist either. And you had top female officials in the Trump administration testifying to that. Michael, what what did you make of that? Well, first
3: of all, just very quickly on Pam Bondi, did you really think that they were going to put that oppo just you know to waste? I mean, they were, of course, <laughs> going to, to at least you know, pay lift service, all that coat. effort. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, they they sure. certainly spent a lot of capital on collecting that material. Yeah, I mean, in terms of you know, casting the president as, you know, a friend of the, the black community and, you know, the candidate of women, do you remember, Francesca, when Kaylee McEnany, I, it was a couple months ago, I think, mocked Mitt Romney on his percentage of the black vote in 2012? She said it was something like, he got 2% and yeah which was false by the way and because he, he, he got, got like 1% less.
2: less than the president right,
3: right, president right but but her point was and i think that this is where their thinking is uh, you know that not that they can make huge inroads in the black community but perhaps and you know in they could suppress you know black voter turnout by making it less of a stark choice and at least hold their previous 2016 margin. So when I was watching the convention, I had that in mind and also the prospect that they're building a permission structure, right, for, for white voters who don't want to be associated with a candidate who is, you know, widely seen as potentially racist or stoking racism in this country.
1: Yeah, I I saw that messaging is really aimed squarely at more moderate suburban white voters. Yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, I know Francesca mentioned the St. Louis couple. And that was, to me, just one of the starkest moments of the convention to have this moneyed white couple in the suburbs talking, you know, about essentially like, you know, the attack on the suburbs. It was not a subtle euphemism. Right, at all. And I thought that that was really just much more uh, telling of where the party actually is than a lot of the lip service that they paid throughout the rest of the convention.
2: But to your point, Michael, with the St. Louis couple, again, and then after that, they spent a lot of time after, again, showing imagery of black protesters yeah, marching towards absolutely. their home, this white suburban couple's home, which has been a a huge message for Donald Trump, which is on un- as you to get back where we started, which is in uh, a Joe Biden America, quote unquote, you won't be safe. Then they spent a lot of the other parts of the convention, putting up African-Americans who are prominent in Donald Trump's administration or prominent supporters of his, saying that the Donald Trump I know is, is, is not a racist so that they could argue, what are you talking about? We had all these people who were up here. And as far as the women go, You know, Alex. I think that's a a a separate and uh, really interesting point too. Putting up Kaylee McEnany, putting up Kellyanne Conway in their quote unquote personal capacity, right? Because these are all White House officials who couldn't appear from the actual White House, but that's who they leaned on when they needed to make the case that Donald Trump is a friend of women. Is they 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 went out and got these other these White House officials to do that, or or Pam Bondi, who by the way also used to work for the White House, right? These are the these are the people they had making this case. And again, I just, we'll see. I guess we'll see in the polling, right? Whether or not white suburban women are convinced by Kaylee and Kellyanne and Pam Bondi and these types of folks that Donald Trump is a friend of women.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's move on to each of our final impressions of the RNC. What one big takeaway that you had moving forward? Michael, you you go first. Gosh, um, I'm putting I'm putting you on the spot here.
3: Yeah. I mean, again, the one I would just go back to where we started, which is the the one big takeaway was that they have settled on a message. And it's just the jury is clearly out on whether it's a winning message. You know, I think Francesca made a really important point that if the Republican message has been that the Democratic Party has become, you know, uh, radicalized through and through, including this, you know, octogenarian who has been in Washington for 47 years, suddenly he yeah. is a radical, you know, that was not visible in the DNC by design, right? And, yeah. and, and so they're going to have to really make that argument in, in some creative ways, because Joe Biden is in a quantity. So I'm not sold that it's, it's a winning message, but I do think it's a disciplined message. And that's my top takeaway. Francesca, what do you think?
2: So I want to piggyback on that. I have another thing, but I, I just want to respond to you, Michael, and also mm-hmm. note that in, in our reporting of that story this week, and I think this is really important, part of the reason, though, that Donald Trump's campaign has been able to make those arguments against Joe Biden and his campaign is because they're not saying that those things in some ways aren't true. Right. Like when the right is making these attacks that you would otherwise say on the face of it, that Joe Biden has these extreme and radical views on abortion, for instance, is how it came up in our piece this week. The Joe Biden campaign is notably not coming out and saying, no, he doesn't have the the extreme and radical views you're ascribing to him. That he is for abortion, for instance, but we don't really know beyond that what his stance is. And when you try to press, you know, they don't want to go there because they don't want to upset the the progressive base. And they don't think that they can there's nothing to be won from distinguishing any more of his views on that topic. And that is where the right and conservatives and Donald Trump are sliding on in to say, well, silence is compliance, essentially, on these issues. And so I'll be curious in the final stretch of this campaign to see if Joe Biden's campaign starts pushing back a little bit more on on any of these these attacks on him that that he's a socialist, some of these other things. Because again, you don't want to upset Bernie Sanders and and all his his base that you need to come out for him. And uh, picking on that, I will just say, Alex, since we did get to do my you know book report of my in my notebook, that's what I'm tacking on. Please do. So Joe Biden has now said that he will be out on the campaign trail. He is planning to get out there. That's something Alex, you and I had been watching. John Kerry had Mm -hmm. said that something at the convention and a a press call that he expected Joe Biden to be out there, which was way beyond what the the Biden campaign had said. And so lo and behold, you now see as this margin between Joe Biden and Donald Trump closes. You can argue about whether or not either of the candidates should be out there campaigning during coronavirus. But it is true that since Donald Trump and his campaign started holding these bus tours and events, the gap started to narrow for them. And now Joe Biden says that he will be campaigning in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, in Wisconsin, and some of these other battleground states. They're gonna try and find ways for him to do it safely. They haven't said what those ways are. Meanwhile, I've got a story out today about how President Trump is relying on his family. He has four adult children. Two of the partners of his adult children work full-time for the campaign. His son, Don Jr., is planning to be out on the campaign trail by October, five to six days a week for him. So they're making what was described to me as a a full-court press and putting his entire family on the map. Other people like Ivanka Trump won't be out there as much because she works at the White House, so she'll be out there about one time a week. But I still think that that's a really really striking for the Trump campaign, maybe what you might have expected, but no uh, other sitting president has had his family working for the White House, working for the campaign and out there that frequently.
1: Good stuff from both of you. I would just say as my final point, look, I do think the GOP messaging really took a step forward in this convention, finding a, a single line of attack. One problem, though, that they continually confronted first to this convention, they would have speakers almost seemingly back to back, one of whom would describe Joe Biden as, some, as an ally of rioters, someone who wouldn't do nearly enough to stop people in crime in the streets. And then the next speaker would come on and talk about how Joe Biden in the 90s was right. too tough Absolutely. on crime yeah. and, when, and had locked up too many African Americans. And you saw this paradox just happen over and over and over again, night after night after night at the convention. And no real attempt to resolve it. Maybe there is a way to, to thread that needle. But this was a problem that the Trump campaign had coming into the convention. And they didn't really make much of an attempt to try to resolve it at the convention. So presumably, yeah. it's going to be a problem here over the course of two months. I, I, th-
3: I think that the way that they're trying to do that is the empty vessel argument, which is, yes, he mm-hmm. had these positions in the 90s, but now he's, just, he's trying to ride whatever he needs to ride to get to power. And at the point at which mm-hmm. he's in power, he will be beholden to what has become the norm in the Democratic Party, which is quote unquote, you know, democratic socialism or whatever you want to call it, which mm-hmm. that, that that's how I think they've tried to square that circle. But again, I'm not convinced it's it's effective, but yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it, I mean, it's 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 a difficult thing. And I, I think normally you would expect them, you know, maybe to different constituencies, to different groups of voters in, in more targeted ads. You could play that up. The part that surprised me has been surprised, not just at the convention, but this whole campaign, mm-hmm. that it's all interwoven into sort of the broad message And seemingly, you would have to try to pick one lane. But we'll see as they move forward. Maybe they can figure out how to do that. Hey, Francesca and Michael, thank you both very much for coming on the show this week. Very much enjoyed it. Absolutely.
2: Thank you. And so did my cat who just walked through.
1: (laughs) I'm just disappointed your cat didn't make another surprise appearance on on the show.
2: Oh, he did. He did. Oh, he did. Oh, he did? Oh,
1: I I missed it. (laughs) Uh, I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Gavin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check like I said, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week at our regularly scheduled Thursday time.